before Black Lives Matter, Portland was a city of protest. Portland held their own march against racism after Portland police threw dead possums in front of black-owned businesses. This happened the same decade as the Walkman and Nintendo Game Boy. The same protest came back in 1988 when Mula Geta a black Ethiopian student, was beaten to death with a baseball bat by Eastside White Pride, a Portland branch of the Aryan Resistance. In the 1990s, Portlanders protested the Trojan nuclear power plant until it was decommissioned in 92. Portlanders protested during Occupy Wall Street and in the Women's March of America and for Hands Across Hawthorne, which was a local pro-gay rally after a homosexual couple was cornered at the waterfront and beaten by five men. Since Trump's presidency, Portland has become a city of nonstop protests. The March for Science, March for Our Lives, and Domestic Terrorism, Indigenous People's Day of Rage, George Floyd. The list goes on and on. Journalist Shane Dixon Kavanaugh once wrote in Oregonian, quote, Portland's convulsive protests thrust the city in the national spotlight as they often descended into violence and chaos, even as most demonstrators remained peaceful. The churn of marches, demonstrations, and rallies has become enduring fiber in the fabric of the city. All right, I think we get it. Portlanders have protests like other cities have, like marathons and parades. So when the Amir Locke rally happened last February, it was received by most as just another protest. Amir Locke was a 22-year-old black man shot by police in Minneapolis. The protests around his death became an extension of Black Lives Matter. Just another march in a season of marches. Except, this was also a day Benjamin Smith was watching Fox News and checking his Facebook. This was a day Benjamin Smith was overheard by his roommate screaming about fucking liberals ruining America. A day Benjamin Smith grabbed one of his handguns walking outside to Normandale Park and began shooting. In a city with a long history of protest, this was the catalyzing moment. The moment when a man felt morally justified in killing a 60-year-old woman who had volunteered as a crossing guard, as well as spraying into the crowd with his 45 handgun until he paralyzed another person and injured several more, hitting five people in total. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Lomitz, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-da on the internet. Today is part two in our two-part series about the state of political parties in America. In last week's episode, we focused on moral outrage, why it's become the default tool for media and politicians to mobilize us, and why outrage is actually pretty awful for you on a personal development level. 
On today's episode, we want to try to reverse the political friction we've seen here in Portland. After all, what are we really fighting about? If you feel strongly about a law or issue, you should go vote on it, right? Instead, we have the system George Washington warned us about. He called the parties potent engines, which could be hijacked by cunning men to usurp government power. Today we ask, is there a better way? Can we untie the knot of war between liberals and conservatives before we're back to muskets and cannons? To start our investigation into the parties, we have a few myths to bust. Myths like, myth one, how polarized have the parties really grown? Are we just fooling ourselves when we talk about the good old days of Republicans and Democrats being able to pass bills together? Myth two, not all politicians can be swayed by money. There are a few bad apples, sure, but it's not as if Joe and I could use the latest stats to buy our governor's vote, could we? Myth three, okay, so if all parties are flawed and we're not supposed to vote based on the candidate's tie color, then what? What do we base our votes on? We're going to get into our myths. But first, I want to talk to Joe about the Portland police and why they were so careful not to mention Benjamin Smith's politics. I want to give a, a little bit of a shout out for this episode to um, Jason, who is a um, conservative researcher who I go to for advice sometimes on episodes. Um, whenever we touch our toe into politics, I kind of check with like um, folks who can explain both sides to me fairly eloquently. And I need that because I do watch all sides of the news just to see what, you know, what everyone's buzzing about, but it is getting less and less informative. So I need people who can actually give me information and not just, you know, talking points. Um, and I, I also had my therapist give me good advice, which is stop trying to be right all the time, which that could just be every show, every minute of every day. Honestly, it's good advice. Um, okay. So when, when this shooting happened, uh, did you see it in the news when it occurred? I did, but it didn't really touch my heart like it did when I've been doing the research for this one. Yeah, it. It flew under the radar for me, and I didn't know why until we started sort of working on this episode. Um, they tried to downplay it from the start, and I even looked up, speaking of checking all sides, I read the Fox News report on this, I read the, um, the Oregonian report on this, and almost every group tried to underplay this except for like there were a couple of sources from like Oregon Live that were like, this was crazy. Well, anytime someone's paralyzed, even more so than getting killed, it seems to stick in my heart and my head much longer. Yeah. Police Chief Chuck Lovell said, a confrontation between armed resident and armed protesters, which we're going to find out that is a not just inaccurate that is a gross misinterpretation of what happened <laughs> this was not yeah that makes it sound like somebody got angry at the like a noise complaint went wrong like somebody went out because of you know 
some uh, a resident got angry at protesters and a fight broke out. That's not what happened. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think at the time there was genuine concern of there being a full-on race war of some sort, right? I honestly think that's... Um, if we're going to say this wasn't uh, a police chief being politically motivated to downplay it, I think it was actually for like public, public safety. safety. It, yeah. Yep. Because you could really feel in the city it just ticking up and people getting more resentful and more angry and ready to to grab a gun and do something for their side. Yeah, this was like the second or third major political killing in the same like month or two. Like it was yeah, the same summer, if, if nothing else. Um, so can you walk us through like who was this guy and, and how did we get to this moment where like he's opening fire on protesters? Well, Benjamin was, by all intents and purposes, kind of a recluse person. He started out being the neighbor that everybody liked, a quiet, keep-to-themself guy. Um, I have some um, interviews with his roommate. He moved a roommate in and was very kind and generous with his food and didn't charge the person rent. But then over years, started to charge rent and then became increasingly paranoid, angry, upset, unhappy. And it was kind of being in this small apartment um, to the point where the roommate didn't feel safe anymore. It went from great guy to eh, he's okay guy to a jerk to I don't know if it's safe here for, for me to live here anymore. Okay. He did have a thing for guns, collected guns, talked about guns. He threatened in some homeless people around his apartments, which is probably pretty normal for Portland, right? <laughs> Threatening homeless or having homeless? Both. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I, I think people scream at homeless and stuff. I see it when I'm downtown Portland all the time. To clarify and not make us sound like monsters, seeing homeless is extraordinarily common. Um, seeing people, property owners, trying to get them to move is extraordinarily common. We don't have, um, what is it, uh, loitering laws? Or, or anything like that. So you will have these confrontations where homeowners feel like they're entitled to be able to get through an entryway or something. And um, the homeless know that the police aren't really going to do anything because there's no law that they can be charged with unless they are obstructing somebody's private dwelling. So they can be on the sidewalk. They can be in the way. They can they can basically be wherever they want. Um and be wherever they want if you haven't been to Portland or any major city is a tent that's, you know, put together with boards and there's be a bottle of um, urine and feces out. You know, it's really not pretty. There'll be needles everywhere. Yeah. There'll be alcoholism. I mean, it's, it's about as ugly as it gets. So we are not defending the actions of a violent no. so, um, offender. So We're him saying, going out yelling at people in his apartment complex, that by itself is a very normal thing. And people get fed up or they're trying to get to their parking spaces. They're trying to get into their driveway and you just get you get angry. So that that is OK. But he had some other things, too. He started posting on Reddit and he had a username called Polybun. A lot of anti anti-Semitic um comments he also praised uh, Kyle Rittenhouse the teenager who got acquitted of those of those murder charges okay so that may have been maybe a copycat maybe maybe we're not gonna assume copycat but at least somebody who felt 
like justified. And Smith has been kind of an extreme unhappy man for a while. There was a blog he wrote about a decade ago, and there was a lot of racial language about. He talked about a black scientist. He made some homophobic slurs, um, falsely accused a certain nationality of spreading the swine flu. So he he was kind of to me. It sounds like looking for causes to be angry and radicalized. Talking about Kyle Rittenhouse, somebody went to Kenosha to start something with the protesters or they defended themselves while they were defending a target, a gas station, um, cars, like a property and businesses. We talked in the last episode about moral foundations, the idea that Democrats or, or liberals and conservatives aren't going to see eye to eye on just foundational morals. But something I've been noticing when we talk about seeing copycats of, we're not going to say copycats of murders, but copycats certainly of their defense of why they went out shooting. That is actually probably a better way to say it is this certainly was going to be a copycat of, you know, I shot these people because they were protesting and I felt threatened. Yeah, because a lot of conservatives agreed with the Rittenhouse decision. Yeah. I think that the difference here is when you watch the Rittenhouse video, people are running at him. You can understand, if not what put him there in that situation, you can at least understand that there is fear when people are running at you. Like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to breeze past all the political stickiness and just simply say, I see what they were able to get across in court. This is not that situation. This is a man who grabbed his gun, had been watching Fox News, had a history of being radicalized, and then started a confrontation with his gun out. Like, like he, he was looking for this. And Gladwell did a good thing about this. I think we, I'm going to, I'm going to unpack that and go back and disagree with you on that. Okay. I think the real action is when you take a gun to a emotionally charged anything. Yeah. That's the initial problem. And I'll tell you why, because the actual bam, bam, bam happens in seconds. Like our, our brother Malcolm Gladwell would say, it's not like it is in the movies. It's just happened. Right. But you put yourself in that position where you were in an emotional state with that gun in hand. No good can what good can actually come out of that? Right. It's it's wanting to take up the sword for a cause. Like I, I'm I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying emotionally, I know why it's happening. It's to gain control back. It's yes. for me to pull this gun out and say, "You are an idiot. You need to change." It's to scare those people. Exactly. And and to grab that power. Your your phrasing was perfect. Gaining control back. You see a lot of people in the street you disagree with. They're making a lot of noise. It seems to you like they are gaining traction and controlling that little part of your neighborhood. And it's to gain control back. We saw the same thing with that couple that took their rifles and went out to the edge of their property and stood there to watch the protesters. We keep seeing this. And, and I'm ultra sensitive to when things happen at home, too. Let's yeah. face it. We're a little more protective of our own property, wherever we stay. Yeah. That's that's why we're, if anyone's like, why are we getting so pedantic into the, the why about, you know, grabbing your gun and going to a protest? 
it's because I really fear that people listening to this episode are going to do the same thing that Fox News did with the people who were killed in the Rittenhouse trial. After, you know, if you watch the video leading up to the Rittenhouse shooting, it really feels to me like a couple of a-holes met each other and it happens that one of them had a gun or, or they, they had guns, plural. This is not the same case. I don't want to have... The, the reason why you haven't heard about this so much is because it doesn't have the tasty narrative of, you know, th- this guy was a, a convicted, you know, um, uh, pedophile. This other guy had a history of being a, a, um, a an upstart or a, a rioter. No, this was one man was in an apartment. He got mad because he was getting radicalized by Facebook and Fox News. He grabbed his gun and he didn't meet up with somebody who could very easily be, you know, Fox couldn't dig into her history and say she deserved it. Instead, it was a 60-year-old woman who was volunteering as a crossing guard. And people loved her because she was active in protests and she was a friendly human being and people liked her. It's very hard to spin that into a popular narrative. It's much easier to quickly report on it and just walk away from it. Do you remember a time when you could talk about what political party you were from at work and everyone would just kind of shrug? Nobody really cared? I do, as opposed to the shunning and judging that goes along now. Yeah. The blocking and the ignoring. and the <laughs> It wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. I, I miss it. I miss being bored when somebody was like, I'm a blank party. And I'd just be like, good, great, fine. In our opinion, when did the clock start start on that? Bush, I think. I, I you said it last episode. You you used to sound smart when you would bring up politics, because it took so much effort and reading to understand. Um, I think on the Bush thing, you're talking about Bush Jr., right? Yeah. I think I started to see. Uh, you you could never talk back about presidents like they do nowadays. It wasn't like that. Right. There was a certain amount of patriot patriotism with, with whoever was in office. But I think when they start with Junior, when they start talking about how dumb he was, those jokes. Yeah. It got a little out of hand. And of course, he's, you know, Ivy League. He's, if you're the president of the United States, you're not a dummy. I don't care who, what, if you're red or blue. Right. <laughs> but I think that's when it started getting in. And then social media is just taking it to a whole new level. I think the way I said it, um, somebody asked me. Um, how I can try to both sides a issue with Trump. Um, and I said that I dislike him personally, but I hope he succeeds when he was president. Now I hope he gets buried in lawsuits. But at the time, I whoever the president is, I don't want them to fail. Like I, let's I, captain I, of the ship. We don't we want the ship to go down, right? Yeah, yeah. I I want whoever it is. I may disagree with them it, more. You know, more accurately, I may disagree with their policy m- more often than not, but I don't want to see them destroy the ship that we're all on. That's crazy. The economy's ruined. All these things happen. It's like, oh, see, look, I was right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to be right about this. I liken that to when you're a hardcore sports fan like I am, that you love your team so much that you want them to lose so they'll do some kind of big shakeup. <laughs> I mean, that's how you think. Like, well, this will show them, and then they'll go get the good free agents, and they'll fire the coach and get their shit together. 
Yeah, that was that was effectively what happened when Trump got into office. Is he shook the, he fired everybody in the in the White House. So, I I want to talk about uh, the getting radicalized. I have had this experience where I will see somebody on TV that appeals to me specifically. There's nobody on right now doing this for me, by the way. Um, if there was a a Fox News or if there was a Rachel Maddow that appealed to me on on a personal level and and happened to share most of my same policy values i can see myself getting angry enough to run out to a protest and confront people i may not have a gun but i mean like right now like the the moral outrage demon that sits on everyone's shoulder and tells them they're right every night that's what these news channels are doing for people and that's that's something we haven't had before. We've never had, uh, um, you know, in the past we didn't have the ability to look up Fox News or, or YouTube links or, or um, you know, MSNBC clips. We, we didn't have that thing on our shoulder telling us that we are right to be outraged all the time. That's a new demon. It is, but I can see if you were doing that, maybe with a bow and arrow. My Dungeon Dragons podcast partner here would be out there with a with a sword that he made yeah <laughs> <laughs> kind of dull because he didn't show it that good and yeah <laughs> well that, that's what i'm saying is is you find the right thing for me to be mad about and you find the right speaker um or, or the right personality that, you, you keep you pushing push that me. emotional button you keep pushing keep heating that motor up though eventually everybody will get that way yeah and how radicalized we become it depends on where we start at like my boss at work lives on cute cat memes and like funny videos and she might shift into repeating some of the rhetoric from hate groups like like i've noticed this where like she will watch enough news and get mad enough that she goes from like you know somebody who literally won't curse to quoting news that's as radicalized as she gets the, the the most radicalized she gets is she'll repeat some some bad words that she heard on the news but if you already start from a place like benjamin here where you are angry and you're feeling morally superior and you already are into guns like you don't have that much further to be pushed into radical well touch on that a bit too the the, the moral superiority Okay. Isn't that people who do these horrible things like go into the crowds and shoot six-year-old women who are unarmed, uh, shooting people, paralyzing them? Why would they think that's not immoral? Why did? Why did? How do you justify that kind of action? I am going to kind of use your words again. You feel like you are losing control, and those aren't people anymore. Like they are, they are their pain, their feelings, right? Right. Yeah. They, you, you feel at that point, like the world is better off without them because of their politics. And that's, that's an insane place to get to. That's, that's kind of my point when I ask, do you remember people shrugging when you talk about what political party you're in? We used to see each other as, you know, we were Americans and then we also had parties. We didn't just have parties but now we see it and now we try to avoid those people sometimes you and i if we know they're too political we know they're going to talk our ear off about it right there are I, people now 
in my family who I won't talk to because they want to score points. Like they want to have an inciting conversation with me where we get angry and we take off our shirts and we scream and yeah. we, we, we throw our weight around and get outraged. But they don't want to prove me wrong so that I change my ways. What they want to do is they want to score points and have this experience, have the experience of, you know, grabbing their sword and holding it up and then go back and tell their friends in the same party and camp and cave that they stood up for what they believed in. Like they, so that's the not, interesting part. They're not trying to convert us. No, they're not. They're just trying to diarrhea the mouth, their their values and and power. I've uh, because my politics are so weird. I have very frequently gotten people who have messaged me or talked to me, thinking that I am in one political camp or the other, and they will go off on me because they're expecting me to spar back. And what they don't realize is that I'm not in a political party. And also, I know that they are not trying to convert me to thinking in their way. They're not trying to help me. They're not trying to make me see the light or teach me. They're trying to score points so they can go back and tell their friends about it and their friends who agree with them politically. So my soft skill takeaway of this is just let them run it out and just nod my head. And <laughs> I, I listen and ask questions because I honestly like... Sometimes they say something that I don't expect, or sometimes I, I, I learn something new. Um, the first time I learned about what fiat currency was and what that phrase means is hearing a crazy person in a Guy Fox mask during the Occupy Wall Street screaming at me. 90% of what he said was completely insane. He, he came from the group Anonymous, you know, there, that was a big active force during Occupy Wall Street. Most of what he was shout-splaining to me was nonsense. But then he kind of hit on this bit of rhetoric that, that was being repeated by his group at the time. I looked it up, and it, it led to interesting places. So I I didn't convert to his way of thinking, but I certainly wanted to know it. Um, do you ever think this whole... How does this look from the outside, the the political polarization. Um, I was listening to a, a Adam ruins everything podcast and they had a guy on that was like, he, he wrote about Chinese politics and just offhandedly, he mentioned that the Chinese, when, when we look over at China and we're like, why don't they want democracy? Democracy is the best. Um, like we, we, commies. yeah, exactly. We, we've, we've spent hundred years trying to spread democracy, tell everybody how awesome democracy is, democracy is, but now we can't pass a single bill to save our lives. We can't fix a bridge. We can't get a bill passed. We can't lower medical expenses. Like if you watch, you know, the last year's history of bills being shot out of the sky and even during Trump, we kept running into this issue the only way anything got passed was an executive order. Nobody could agree on anything. So, I mean, like, <laughs> when he said, he's like, China now points to us as a example of why democracy doesn't work. It, it gets locked in place like two stags hitting each other's horns and just nobody moves. It's like, oh, I actually kind of understand that point now, unfortunately. And everyone in Washington loves that. Yeah. Gets the bills paid, though. 
Yeah, they they get paid to lock horns. Like that is, yeah, no consequences. Yeah, exactly. If if you're wondering, um, we're gonna just no politics here. Pew Research. We went to Pew Research, and they talk about how the the polarization in today's Congress has roots that go back, but we have become more um, uh, ideologically cohesive. Is the way they put it on here. Um. They say there are only about two dozen moderate Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill. Uh, there used to be more, like to the tune of 160 or something in the 70s. Uh, again, this is from Pew. <laughs> Both parties have moved away from the center. Um, Democrats, on average, have become somewhat more liberal. Republicans, on average, have become much, much more conservative. And something else that's interesting is Democrats lost a lot of votes from non-college educated moderates in the last cycle. They call it the diploma divide. Like the uneducated masses seem to think our current system favors the wealthy. Go figure. <laughs> so, oh, and if, if you ever wonder, speaking of wealth, if you want to know why Republicans seem so mad about finances why they um, get angry about, you know, Pelosi, um, you know, basically insider trading right before COVID happened to pad her pockets. Um, just being mad about the state of wealth in general. I found out on Pew Research that Republicans were the party of the wealthy back in 2012. Like the, the average Republican had more money than the average Democrat. And then that flipped in the last 10 years. From 2012 to 2021, Democrats became the wealthy party. I actually kind of remember that from uh, my parents. My, my father was a Democrat, and he used to refer to the Democratic Party as the working party or like the laborers party. Yeah. Like they used to represent the working man. I, I see it now. Well, the way I see it is that the Republicans, the, the generational money is the big one. The rich are really rich. Yes. But the most of them are blue collar. And then I see blue left as the college educated professional. Right. I am not to tip my hand too much. And I know I make so many of our episodes about economy. What you said at the very start of this episode, when you were talking about how Benjamin, you know, he started by having a roommate who he allowed to live with him for free. And then the walls got smaller and tighter around them. They lived together longer. They started watching the news more like he started having to charge rent. I'm starting to wonder if this is less of a, um, you know, the, the Republicans are angry because they used to be the party that had money. And they used to be the, you know, now they're the... Oh, they feel like the the homeless people outside were giving them too much and taking it away from us. Yeah, like, it's really easy to start thinking that, you know, we can't have public safety nets and we, we can't have these, you know, giving systems in place when we feel like we are having our things taken away from. So I, I'm wondering how much of... All of this sort of political division is really being driven by, you know, we feel like we're we don't have as much like we we feel like we have, you know, if you're a Republican, you've watched in the last 10 years as your finances have shrank and your options go away 
and there's less males going to college than ever. Like not not just Republicans, men uh, are not going to college in record numbers. There's so a bigger, like bigger divide of the social class for sure. Right? right. How much of this is just feeling like we don't have enough of anything? I think it becomes really evident to who does and doesn't have money. So like Ted Cruz was in the news last week because he ran the um, most expensive race for senator ever. So it's really hard not to see people who, you know, like this giant divide in money. And we tell people that, you know, if you don't like the system, you can change it. Go run for you know governor, go run for Senate, <laughs> right. go run for something. Yeah. But then we watch somebody spend $260,000 of their own money on a political campaign. Let me give you one that always will stand out to me. So this was uh, a presidential election, the last one. So Jeb Bush was the governor of Florida, right? Mm-hmm. For his presidential running, I remember I just I, I fell off the couch when I heard this. <laughs> and it was, it was by a, a Republican's channel. But they said he spent on TV advertising in the state he's already governor of $50 million in two months. <laughs> Good Lord. Are you fucking kidding me? They already know you. You're the governor there. <laughs> yeah. The incumbent should win, and yet he's he's putting out $50 million. It's not his money. Yeah. But it's just like, whoa. And he, and he didn't even like, like fifth place. Okay. So, so let's think about all the people who spend more. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second. How much money does it take to get elected? You know, okay. Actually, let me let me take this from a different direction. The um, the researcher I talked to, uh, the one I shouted out at the beginning of the episode, he once told me that he didn't think money from lobbyists and money from campaign war chests actually sways politicians. He told me that um, this is a very very bright person. Like he, I, if I tried to explain some of the stuff he's clarified for me, like palace economy and like physics and things like that, it would your head would explode. Um, I'm lost already. Just yeah. That. But he he genuinely was like, yeah, there's a couple bad apples, um, politicians who are going to take money and it'll sway them. But honestly, that's, you know, that's not what people go into politics for. And I believe he's right. I, I don't think everyone goes into it thinking someday I'll take a lobbyist money and that'll make me rich. But if you're, you know, if, if the way you get a food pellet from the universe is to get elected. The only goal you have in life is to get elected. And you know that you're going to need Ted Cruz money to get elected. You're going to need, um, you know, uh, you're going to need that 50 million to get elected. Whatever it is, you have a campaign manager who has told you, here's your target amount of money. You will not get elected without this number. Then your life is going to be about getting people to donate to you. And that's that's even politicians who are serving us right now, the people, they are supposed to be our servants. And a large portion of their day, even when they are doing their job, is to ask people for money. It's fundraising. It's but it's <laughs> you say what you have to say and believe what you have to believe to get more checks in the in the mail. Right. Exactly. So now Todd and I are going to buy we're going to buy a politician. <laughs> 
um, I went looking. I wanted to prove my friend um, right. I wanted to be like, yes, you're right. You can't sway a politician too far or, or you know, you can only enrich their war chest so much before they just think I'm going to get caught or, you know, they they don't want to be that bad apple. Um, so this comes from a this is the Roosevelt Institute and they did a study where they basically found that for every hundred thousand dollars that a Democratic representative receives from finance, the odds that they would break with their party's majority um would increase by 13.9%. So a, a Democratic representative who voted in favor of finance um, would receive 200000 to 300000 from that sector, which raised the odds of them swaying 25 to 40%. So for the cost of a house... That like, was fa- fast, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first time, it didn't take, you didn't have to warm them up. They just <laughs> it, it's, it's just averages. Like, like... It, it it costs this this article goes on to basically say that it costs a heck of a lot less to sway somebody who is already voting in your favor um like it you you donate a couple thousand dollars to them um and they will sway to continue voting in your favor but to vote against their own interest and their own party the price goes up but it's not as high as you'd think so if you're a business and you're just like, hey, you know, if, if, if you're in a pharmaceutical, let's just, I don't know, arbitrarily pick that and you want to get somebody to vote your way, you just reach out and according to the study, you know, put a hundred to $300,000 in their war chest and you have a significant increase in percentage that they will vote your way. Think of how powerful that makes these multi-billionaires and not even just uh individual people who have that kind of rich riches but businesses yeah could get, especially on a local you know, a local government could really do some they could run the city <laughs> absolutely so i didn't want to make that the focal point of this episode i just wanted to point out that we actually have statistics and data about how much money it takes to sway a politician so um as we're going through this episode and we're talking about you know, why uh, do Republicans seem mad right now? Um, why does the Department of Justice and the National Institute of Justice, why do they say that conservatives are so much easier to radicalize? You know, why are they so angry about this division of, of money? Well, it's because you can buy a vote. Like It really comes down to if you don't have a voice and you know that your vote's not really going to count when it comes to you know, people putting money into a politician's coffers like you can't vote against it's it's your vote tells a politician, please, you know, represent me. And then three hundred thousand dollars lands in their campaign chest. They're not going to vote with you. So now that we're sort of angry, <laughs> now that we've got our ire up, um, can we talk a little bit about, you know, where were the signs of him getting radicalized? He felt like he didn't have a voice. And I want to see things from his perspective before we sort of drag him through the mud. Well, the the best stuff I could find was from his old roommate. And and no one knows you better than the people you work with and the people you live with, right? Especially the live with part. You can kind of put on a show at work, but 
Yeah, they're the ones that get to see you in your underwear, and they're the ones that get to see you, you know, not actually washing the dishes before you put them away. When you're exhausted and tired. And she said again, she said that he was not a bad guy. He was a nice guy, but she noticed during the years he started to get more radicalized um, about the time when Obama was, was in office. And then, believe it or not, it got even more extreme when Trump. So that kind of warmed up the warmed him up with Obama. And then Trump, he got really extreme. It wasn't uncommon to hear him in his closed room to be screaming racial slurs or negative things about women. And so you can see how that would be kind of unnerving for a roommate. You have some friends screaming, and I've had. I don't know. He probably had some rough roommates. I've had. To, I've lived with people yeah. like that. And he talked about all the time, you know, he's a gun guy. He talked about, let's go shoot commies, um, Antifa. Let's go shoot those, kill these guys. Um, the best quote I found about him was, a sad, angry dude. He was mad about, furiously mad about masks. More mad than was probably appropriate. And he hated the left liberals. Okay. This is different than the one, the, the person, the, the guy that comes into work and shoots people at work. And everyone says he was just so quiet and so nice and always kept to himself. Everybody who was in contact with this man said he was boiling over and it was just a matter of time. He'd been banned from Twitter from putting inappropriate things. He was just so close. He just needed that cause. He needed that one button to grab a gun and run to the streets and kill somebody. So I... I... I think I accidentally spoiled part of our um, our reveal here when I talked about going to the National Institute of Justice for data and looking at Ohio State um, and a study they did for basically how easy it is to radicalize certain groups. Um, so when we hear about you know crimes being committed, when I watch Fox News, they oftentimes say that it's both sides. Uh, Fox News says that liberals are destroying the republic and they're kind of crumbling the foundations of what we have. And they talk about violent crimes, but they're not very specific. They they very, very infrequently say, you know, this is somebody who pulled the trigger or, or point to somebody. It's because the majority of the radicalized crimes going on and again, this isn't me saying this. This is the FBI, the National Institute of Justice, the DOJ, and Ohio State. Conservatives, according to the study we're going to link to, which is from science.org, results confirm that conservatives have a lower sensitivity than liberals, performing worse at distinguishing truths and falsehoods when it's related to the news. This is partially explained by the fact that most widely shared falsehoods tend to promote conservative positions while corresponding truths typically favor liberals. I kind of want to dwell on that with Benjamin for a second, just concerning this. I don't want anyone listening to this to think, aha, this is the moment we have proven that conservatives are stupid. I want to go in the opposite direction. In the last episode, we talked about moral foundations. We talked about how if you are a conservative, you connect higher on issues of you know purity and authority and social connectiveness that one most importantly the idea that you know you 
place your ties to the people around you on a higher value than liberals who scored higher on fairness and whether or not somebody's being harmed. The idea that you would go online like Benjamin did and see, you know, see all these horrible things happening and know that if that other group just didn't exist, then your group could be fine. Like, does it... I, I want to ask you a personal question, Todd. Do I sound crazy because I want to get in the head of somebody who has done a heinous crime and starts spewing hateful shit online? <laughs> I think so, because they're not going to all fit in the same box. I mean, it's just... Their brains have been scrambled by neglect that they had when they kid. And I their own i think a lot of times when i heard this one the thing that popped up to my head was loneliness anytime i hear of a single male yeah with these derogatory things about women and stuff i think it's someone who's just lonely and <laughs> needs some friends yeah i i think that accounts for the people who actually pull the trigger like i i, I think that isolation and loneliness needing those connections and being easier to fully radicalize and go out and pull the trigger like the um, supermarket shooter last week these are people who they were closer to radicalizing right well i think your strength and what you see is that how can people that you know and love who are great people become so radical about something and so opinionated and so i'm not willing to listen to other people just so that that's the people you're going after. That is, it really is. Like, I'm, I'm trying to understand the whole shift of conservatives as a group. And it just so happens the ones on the edge just fell off. We have back in the day, you know, big drinker partier. It used to be in a bar, you know, good old white trash, uh, cowboy bar, biker bar. The, two, the only two things you can't talk about are politics and religion. Yeah. I kind of have a it's a solution that would solve a couple of our problems not all of them clearly um, but I was wondering if you would entertain me with like maybe all we need is just a different um, way of voting okay well, I'm willing to listen okay <laughs> um, have you heard of ranked choice voting I have not okay um this is something that was brought up by uh, Hassan Minaj, who uh, has a show called Patriot Act. He's very, very liberal. But this is also something that um, you know, Republican states have started adopting now. So we've got a smattering of articles we're going to hearken to. But um, Maine became the first state to adopt uh, the format um, statewide, basically, for all their elections. Um, Utah is rolling out pilot programs for it. And I don't think it's because all of them watch the same episode of this very liberal show by Hassan Minaj. Uh, Virginia. Virginia just had their first real upset where a, um, a Republican governor upset the seat of somebody who was sitting in. And it's not because it was a red versus blue election that they needed ranked choice voting. But because um, the one who got elected, Yunkin, he sounded more reasonable and more acceptable to, you know, to everybody. Like he was he was not most people's first choice, 
he was most people's second or third choice. Um, so do you want to like explain a little bit about what ranked choice voting is and why it might help? Sure. Eight major candidates are each trying to break out of this crowded field. And New York is implementing something interesting here, ranked choice voting. This is happening for the first time where voters can actually rank their candidates in their order of preference. If you are running for, um, well, let's, let's pick a party. We'll, um, what, red. what red? Yeah. Okay. Um, you're running for a red party. Um, you go to the primaries. Folks are going to be able to rank their choices from one to five. I'll vote for you. Your mother will vote for you. Obviously <laughs> your wife might, um, so let's let's say all together you have thirty percent of our votes, and we're we're all going to say we're all in the the red party for now. Um, if you if everybody else makes less votes than you do by a slim margin, even you move forward, right? Yeah, that makes sense. After that, you only really represent thirty percent of the conservatives who voted for you, meaning oh, I you, see never actually represent half of the population you were only the first choice for like a you know a fraction of you if it's red and blue represents 50 50 we'll say of the population you're only getting in that first primary 30 percent of 50 percent gotcha makes total sense yeah if if half the pie is cherry and the other half is blueberry you only got one third of the cherry pie. So like you only ever really had you know, a, a slim amount of uh, approval from everybody. If there isn't a candidate who gets 50% or more than 50% of that vote, and with so many candidates, it's, that's highly likely. And so what we're going to see is New York City tabulate those votes, and they are going to eliminate the last place finisher in each round and then redistribute those uh, votes to other candidates, to the lower choices for those voters. And so instead um, of one slice moving forward and representing the whole body, what you have is you have multiple people from every party going up all at once and people rank who they want their first second or third pick to be and if you get knocked out say um you know, say you are 30 percent of the vote but the guy right behind you says a lot of really impressive stuff like they they sound more reasonable generally to everybody uh, they get maybe 28 percent of your party's votes but People from the other side are willing to put him as their second or third choice. That counting continues until we have a winner, until somebody has more than 50 percent of the vote. So that's that's how Governor Glenn Youngkin uh, pulled ahead in Virginia's um, gubernatorial runoff. The Democrat Terry McAuliffe had more support from his side, obviously, but more people on both sides were willing to say, you know, yeah, push comes to shove, I'd take a Yunkin. <laughs> so you're not going to get the populist people. You're not going to get the Trump. You're going to get one of the people that Trump made look lame in the, the Republican primaries. You're going to get everyone's second choice, the, the shrug that I would take that if I need to. On the, you know, on the presidential election, it was, always, it was a head scratcher to me because I remember that when everyone was running for president, they were just so nasty towards each other. 
And then the second they were they were eliminated, they went to work for the president. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they demonized each Swearing other. Swearing blood oaths yeah. by the time and they the, came back. And the next day they're shaking hands and they're on board. And I'm like, what happened? I just saw you guys in a debate and, and you were f- spitting fire at each other. Yeah, you, you called them uh, uh, unprofessional and unready for the job. And then you're like, Mr. President, salute. Why is this so important? Um, well, it, if there is a Trump and a Biden running against each other, if I am a company, like I'm Pepsi, I want Trump to win. So I just put all of my money into Trump's campaign coffers. And then from that moment on, Trump owes me one. If I if I follow the statistics, if I buy a governor and I put, you know, or a senator, I put $300,000 into their campaign coffers, I can now expect them to generally vote my way next time they go to vote. However, if there's nine of him running and I know that like one of those people who is the, the, the more acceptable all around winner, uh, it makes it so much harder for me to invest in them as a, as a campaign. I can't just sweeten one of their, you know, war chests with $300,000. I now have to spread that money around. I can't predict it. (laughs) You got to buy everybody. (laughs) Yeah. It's like going to the horse race and betting on every single horse. You're going to lose so much money. You'll have the winner. The PGA does that with their golfers. Let's say you and me are not Tiger Woods or the big names, Roy McDonald. We're, We're in the low, low, barely in the PGA. They're going to pay us millions of dollars every year just in case that one day we play really well and we're on TV a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if it never happens, we don't get the money back, but we got we got to put our marker on that kid. Yeah. More than cutting down on, you know, absolute crazy, like Ted Cruz levels of campaign spending, what I want to get away from, and I hope slough voting or, or you know, ranked voting does this, I hope it ends up with a system where we look at the five different Republicans or nine different Democrats running and they all are running all at once. They haven't been eliminated like, you know, like it's a sports game. And now we suddenly have to look at what issues they have. I can't just say, oh, the red guy is from my party. I'll vote red. Now I have to be like, okay, of these five red candidates, which one believes the same way I do? Which one sounds reasonable to me? My jersey won't win. It's who would I actually vote for, issue by issue. I do realize, too, um, I am running dangerously close to making this all about, you know, strictly politics, strictly voting, uh, strictly um, what we need to fix in the system. I don't want to forget that there was a victim here, that this story revolves around, you know, somebody who we couldn't dig up their past and justify why they needed to die. Um, so can we actually talk a little bit about, you know, the, the tragedy? The woman who died, there was five people shot, um, including the shooter guy that being shot by someone in the, in the crowd, which is a hero, which I wish we could do another show about them, but... The victim, Brandon Lynn Knightley, and out of respect for her, I'm going to call her by what she went by. She went by June Knightley. She's a 60-year-old, very, very, for decades was involved in a lot of the movements in Portland. Um, Big time, very involved in the LGBTQ movement. And she was always, 
she was that crazy little old lady, 60 years old. You know the kind that dyes their hair pink or plum? <laughs> She's got the tie-dye shirt. She, she fits the hippie thing, almost like a cliche. Yeah. And she just had a knee surgery, so she hobbles around on a uh, with a cane. She goes to events, and what she does and what she was doing at this event was she is a crossing guard because there's big groups of people moving and there's cars going, so she'll hold up a little flag and let people walk. I mean, to me, it's, it's just, what a shame. Yeah. And that's the person you go out and fucking shoot and kill. It's just someone that everyone likes. She had the nickname, and I don't know the relevance or what it means, but she went by the nickname. She liked to be called T-Rex. That was her <laughs> her thing. So rest in peace. Um, she was there to protect people, and she did protect She did protect someone. She kept someone else from getting killed. So she gave her life for her cause. The reason the episode started the way it did, where we named all those many different protests that Portland sees in any given year, it's because we want to point out that this wasn't a quote-unquote liberal extremist riot or whatever that got shot. It was somebody who went to all different protests for all different reasons because she wanted to help people and she wanted to help people have a voice. She wasn't a threatening, screaming, I'm going to kill you person. No, and she wasn't tied to one you know, specific cause. So that's that. That's why we haven't heard about her. That's why she wasn't paraded in the news. It's because she didn't fit the narrative of this person was the other side. It was just a person. For the last 10 years, the algorithms of social media have tried to teach us one lesson. We need to win at all costs. Feeling really strongly about an opinion entitles you to subvert laws and disrespect the other side and start fights at family dinner. Do anything it takes. Burn bridges. If you're a conservative, your only goal in life is owning the libs. If you're a liberal, your sole purpose is making conservative snowflakes cry. That's what Facebook's algorithms have decreed. And as Zuckerberg's servants, we shall make it so. <sighs> Obviously, this isn't our real opinion on the re-engineered you. We believe there are bigger issues at stake, which are sitting around unsolved in America because the politicians we voted in aren't doers. The politicians who get our votes are the ones who learn to bark and clap like Facebook. Biden says conservatives are extremists, not because he believes it, but because he needs the liberal vote. And liberals are on Facebook. Trump says liberals are ruining America, and he sent federal police to club our liberal protesters. Trump also got elected because of his clever use of Facebook ads and his tweeting. Maybe if we need something to unite the parties, a shared enemy, we should think about the data companies who are re-engineering hate to keep us polarized. The Rachel Maddows and Tucker Carlson's who use algorithms to keep us morally outraged so they can sell us vitamin supplements and ad space. And when we focus so hard on being right, we should ask ourselves if we're doing it for our values or because we want our team to win. 
the more energy we put into being right, the further we get away from our hearts. We don't want to end our two-part episode about political division on a downer. So instead, we'll take a note from the re-engineered youth's favorite depressed president, Abraham Lincoln. Quote, We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Through passion may have strained it, must not break our bond of affection. The mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and her stone all over this broad land, will yet swell the course of the Union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. You've been listening to the Reengineered Youth. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. Please connect with us at www.re-engineered.com where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Thank you.